0: Today, we are going to finish up our series, Right in the Eye. If you've missed any of the messages in this series, shame on you. No, that's okay. If you missed, that's that's okay. You can watch them all at hammockstreetchurch.com. They're always there, or our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash hammockstreetchurch. And remember that at the beginning of the series, we kind of started at the end. We started with this wild, wild story that closes out the book of Judges. And that story set the stage for this theme, for the theme of these messages, which is that there's something in all of us that wants to do what we want to do, when we want to do it, and with whom we want to do it, as long as nobody gets hurt. Of course, we hear that all the time. I don't care what you do as long as nobody gets hurt which isn't necessarily the way to live your life as you've seen. We've been talking about that theme throughout this series because there was a period in the history of Israel when that's exactly what everybody did. Indeed, the final statement that summed up that 300-year period of Israel's history was this statement, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, as we've talked about over the last five weeks, we can all relate to that. And because we can all relate to that, well, some of the problems that Israel experienced are the same problems that we experience. Because, you see, God established the nation of Israel to do something extraordinary. But instead of looking up to God for guidance, the nation of Israel looked around to their culture. And they decided that they wanted to act like all the other nations. And that is kind of what we find ourselves struggling with as followers of Jesus in this world. Instead of looking up to God for our cues, we oftentimes look to our culture and say, well, I'm going to do what everybody else is doing. And so back in that book of Judges, and that story and the cycles that happened seven times over and over again, the followers of God at that time, the Israelites disobeyed God. Then they were confronted with the consequences of their sin. And then when they found themselves in trouble for breaking God's laws, they did the exact same thing that we always do. They cried out to God to rescue them. We always get to that place where we do what we want, do what we want, do what we want. Things crashing around us and we go, help God. And that's what they did. And the God who promised to never leave them or forsake them, saved them from themselves every single time. And God continued to use Israel, in spite of their disobedience, as a light to all the other nations. So think about that. God used this group of nobodies in the middle of nowhere to bless the entire world. So even during this dark time in their history, even though God's people walked away from him over and over and over again, God continued to work through them. And interestingly during the mostly dark period of the judges, when everyone did what was right in their own eyes, when, when most of Israel was believing that God just couldn't be trusted because it seemed that he was no longer active in their midst and that he was no, more, no longer active in their nation, God was, in fact, setting the stage for his greatest miracle ever. God was about to do something that would fulfill an ancient promise to his people and also to the world. And what was interesting about that thing which God was doing and what was so amazing about it is that he did it by using a person who saw no evidence of God's faithfulness in the world and yet remained faithful. It's a story that should give All of us confidence in the fact that no matter what we happen to be going through in our lives, God is at work, even when we can't see it. So our story today is found in what book? Wrong! The Old Testament Book of Ruth. (laughs) So let's pray... And then I'll tell you what we're doing. God, thank you so much for gathering us together here today. Thank you for this ecclesia, for this community that you've built. Thank you for the love that we share. Thank you for the, just the personalities around here. Thank you that even though we're all going through stuff, we all can get together and rejoice and, and fuel up for the week and know that there is a group of people who we love, and with whom together we can love others. So, God, we thank you for this time. Use your words today to open our hearts and minds and transform us from the inside out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so if you have been part of a church community or this church community for a while, you have probably at least heard of or maybe you've read the story of Ruth. And as we saw, if some of you are tracking closely with this series, you're going, wait a minute, I thought this was a series about judges. Why are we going to be looking at Ruth for the last sermon in a series on judges? Well, though you might not be aware of it, The story of Ruth actually takes place in that period of time, takes place during the period of Judges. And the story of Ruth represents a high watermark of the Judges period, and it even continues to pave the way for a miracle that would take place a thousand years in the future from them. All right, so intrigued yet? Hopefully you are, because with the background in mind, here is the story. We go to the book of Ruth, chapter 1, verse 1, and here's where you find it out. In the days when the judges ruled, okay, so that's how we know it took place during Judges, right? In the days that the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. All right, so let's take a look at a map. We can get our bearings here. This is a map of the ancient Holy Land, you don't need to be able to necessarily read the words. Just look for the purple. You see the purple? That is the kingdom of Moab. If you see the little blue spot sitting next to the purple over there, that's the Dead Sea. And if go further to the left, go further, and you'll see the kingdom of Judah. So across the Dead Sea to the east from Judah was the ancient nation of Moab. And when there was a famine in Israel, a man took his family over to Moab in search of food. All right, let's continue on in the text. Verse 2, the man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. And the names of their two sons were Malon and Kilion. And they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab to live there. So Elimelech or Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their four children or their two children were Jews from the tribe of Ephraim who were living in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, Bethlehem. That place sounds familiar, doesn't it? Hmm, okay. So they then left there and went to the land of the Moabites in search of a better life. And so they arrived in Moab and set out to find wives for their sons but they encountered a problem in Moab. All the available women in Moab were, and you're not gonna believe this, Moabites. I know, shocking, right? And God's law, which was handed down by Moses, commanded the Jews not to marry foreign women. Now, before we continue on, thinking that's some kind of racist thing or prejudiced thing, you need to understand it was not racist or racial in any way at all. The truth is, in those days, nobody thought that way. In fact, the whole idea of race, not ethnicity, but race, race was only introduced to the world a few hundred years ago from today. It was introduced to the world in the sixteen or 1700s. So why did Moses make this command? Why would Moses care? Well, Moses' command was simply to keep the Jewish people from worshiping other gods. Because back then, when a person married someone from another culture, they married their gods as well. They kind of got into their gods as well. And as you remember from the story of King Solomon, that was part of his issue. He had a thousand wives. A thousand wives. Guys, just let that sit for a while. A thousand wives. And they all had other gods and goddesses. So guess what? He had shrines, and he had altars to all those gods and goddesses. But God commanded his ancient people, don't do that. In fact, here's what he said in Exodus 20, verse 3. By the way, this is one of the big ten, one of the ten commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. But Elimelech Elimelech and Naomi didn't listen, and each of their boys married a Moabite woman. One named Orpah, not Oprah, but Orpah, and the other, Ruth. Ruth, is that who the book is named after? Shh, we'll get there. But sadly, before too long, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. And then, after they had lived in Moab about 10 years, both Malone and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and without her husband. All right, this left Naomi, and I want you to see this, a Jewish woman stuck in Moab, a foreign country, with only her two Moabite daughters-in-law. Then Naomi heard that God was blessing Israel again. So the famine was over, God's blessing Israel again. So, verse 6, she and her Moabite daughters-in-law prepared to return back to Israel from there. But after they'd set off for Bethlehem, Naomi was having second thoughts about bringing her daughters-in-law back to Israel with her. So she said to them, so remember, here's what she's doing. These are Moabite girls that are now going to go back to Israel so they would be the foreigners. So Naomi says to her daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. In other words, go back to Moab, find yourself a Moabite husband. That's the best way for your life to go. Well, after a little bit of that game we all play, you know, no, I insist. No, I insist. No, I insist. You know, like when you're fighting over a check, when you go out to lunch with a friend, that sort of thing. That's what they're doing. After a little bit of that, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. So Orpah left. She said, I'm going back to Moab, good idea. But Ruth didn't go. Ruth clung to her. So, not only was that a very magnanimous gesture for Ruth, but it was also a very perilous, very dangerous choice. It was a dangerous time in history for women, especially for single women or widowed women. But Ruth, well, she was in it to win it. So she told Naomi this. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Now, boy, that's some, that's some loyalty, isn't it? Ruth was very loyal to her mother-in-law, Naomi, even though her husband was gone. With that, Ruth, the young Moabite widow, and Naomi, the older Israelite widow, made their way back to Bethlehem. And, verse 19, when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Like, she had been gone for 10 years. They were like, wow, is this really Naomi? You look great. You haven't aged a day, Right? When they arrived back in town, the people recognized Naomi. And they wanted to know, Naomi, where have you been all these years? And the struggle-weary Naomi. I mean, think about what Naomi went through for those those 10 years. Lost both her sons. She lost her husband. One of her daughters-in-law went back. And so she responded to them saying, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. That's what Mara means in Hebrew. It means bitter. She continued, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. And if we had a trombone, we'd go, womp, womp, womp. She's really like, she's bumming, right? This is bad. She said, in other words, God, if there is a God, he doesn't know me. He doesn't hear my prayers. Clearly, he's not that into me. See, in that moment, Naomi's life mirrored the experience of the entire nation of Israel during that period. Because it seemed to them during that period of judges that God had abandoned them. But now I want you to see this. God hadn't abandoned Naomi. In fact, she's one of the very, very small number of women during this period in ancient history Whose story has survived to this day, whose name is known to this day. Indeed, Naomi, completely without her knowledge, by the way, was about to become a central figure in the way that God was at work in the lives of his people. We'll get there. For now, back to the story, we go to verse 22. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Now, that seems like a fairly random factoid to include in the story, doesn't it? The barley harvest? Who cares about the barley harvest? Like, why did you put that in there? Well, I want you to look at this. Israel's economy was an agrarian economy. And barley was one of Israel's most abundant crops. So now here's how they practiced. Here's what they did when they planted barley. They planted the barley crop, and then during the harvest season, they would have their servants go out into the field to pick the barley. And in Leviticus chapter 23, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, third book, Old Testament, third book, Moses' law, the law of Moses instructed the Israelites that they were only to harvest their fields one time through. They're supposed to go through the field one time and harvest the barley, but they were to leave the corners of their fields untouched. And they were also to leave the gleanings on the ground after the harvest. What's a gleaning? A gleaning were the kernels of barley or the pieces of barley that remained on the stalks after they went through and picked once, or that ended up on the ground after the harvesting. Now, the reason for leaving all of that was so that the poor and the widows in their society could come behind the landowner's servants and pick up the leftovers for themselves. So the landowner would go through, harvest his barley field, and then the widows and then the poor would come through and walk through the barley field, and they would pick up barley for themselves. And in this way, the people were able to take care of the poor. All right, so knowing that, we're going to continue. So we go to Ruth chapter 2, verse 2. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I favor. I find favor, Naomi said. Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. Now, this was very dangerous. It was very dangerous for a woman to go into a field alone. And it was even more dangerous for a foreigner, it was even more dangerous for a Moabite woman to go into the field alone without a protector. But as it happened, Ruth went into a field that belonged to a man named Boaz. Now, Boaz, as we'll find out later on in the story, was actually a distant relative of Naomi's late husband. But we don't know that yet at this point in the story. So when Boaz goes into his field, he sees a foreign woman out there. And he sees her there with all the Israelite women who were picking up the gleanings from his field. So Boaz, noticing this woman, asked one of his friends about the foreign woman he saw. And here's what the friend answered in verse 6. She is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters... She came into the field and has remained here from morning until now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So, news of the Moabite woman, Ruth, had been spreading around the town, around Bethlehem. It's a small town. They noticed when strangers came in. They noticed when foreigners came in. And they knew the story that she left her own people and her own family to remain faithful to her Israelite mother-in-law, Naomi, notwithstanding the danger that she would face as a foreigner in Bethlehem. And this impressed Boaz. He's thinking, that is a woman of fine character. So he approached Ruth, and here's what he said to her. Verse 11. I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. So Boaz said to her, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. In other words, Boaz said to her, Ruth, for what you have done, may you be rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel. The very same God that Naomi believed had abandoned her. And then Boaz instructed his servants to do something. Here's what he said to his servants. He said, let Ruth gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Don't bother her. Don't bug her. Don't call her out. Don't give her a hard time. Even pull out some of the stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. You understand that they harvested that they had it in their bundles and he said if you can pull some of that out and throw it down on the ground so she can pick it up when I was working at Kendall Lakes Exxon way back in the day there was a there was a gentleman who came around searching for change every morning. That was his thing, is he'd always would walk around the parking lot, and he'd pick up change. And we always felt really terrible for the guy. So what we would do is we would grab some change out of the cash register, and we'd toss it on the ground so that he was successful when he would come and pick up his change. We thought we were doing a wonderful thing until one Sunday I was working there, and he drove up in his Lexus with his wife, who was really nagging at him. But uh, he, he came up and, and bought a pack of cigarettes and left, and we thought, we, we've been paying you for money. Anyway, so, <laughs> all right. So as a result, Ruth did pretty well with her gleaning. So she brought everything back to Naomi, and Naomi asked her. She said this to her, 19, where did you glean today? Where did, where did you work? Like, how'd you get all this stuff? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Well, then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz. Well, Naomi said, may the Lord bless him. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. And then she told Ruth, listen, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Well, after some time went by, both Naomi and Ruth were getting older, and one day Naomi said to Ruth, this is Ruth chapter three, verse one, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be provided for. Now Boaz, with whom, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. In other words, Ruth, Naomi said, I'm not gonna be around forever. And you don't have a husband to take care of you. So you're going to need to find a guardian redeemer. So Naomi decided that in order to save Ruth's future, she had to find a guardian redeemer, a kinsman redeemer. Both words are used simultaneously. All right, what the heck is that, right? We don't have those in our society, even though we kind of do. Because a kinsman redeemer, a guardian redeemer, was merely a wealthy relative, a wealthy extended family member that a family would go to when someone was in trouble. Do you have a rich uncle, a rich cousin that everybody in the family goes to when you need money? Hey, Uncle Bill, uh, can we get a little money here? I Can pay the rent? Right? So that's what you do. Now, interestingly, there were four things that a kinsman redeemer could be asked to do. They could be asked to protect an impoverished family member. See, this is in the days when government didn't say it was going to protect people. Family protected people. Community protected people. So they could be asked to protect an impoverished family member. They could also be asked to repurchase lost property. They could also redeem relatives who were sold into slavery. They sold a lot of people into slavery when they couldn't pay a debt. They said, well, take my son, take my daughter. And in extreme circumstances, they could provide an heir for male relatives in order to further somebody's line or somebody's name or somebody's estate. So that's what the guardian redeemer was there to do. And Naomi told Ruth that she needed one. She needed this guardian redeemer, kinsman redeemer. And the only way that a kinsman redeemer could save Ruth, seeing that she was a foreigner, she was a Moabite, she was not actually a member of Naomi's family, the only way that a kinsman redeemer could save her would be to marry her. This is interesting. We learn later that Naomi's late husband had also owned a piece of property that Ruth's marriage to a kinsman, kinsman redeemer would also bring back into the family so they could recover this property that had been sent out in payment of a debt. So now, before we go on, I want you to know this. It was a very risky venture for anyone to be a kinsman redeemer, especially to be one for a foreign woman. And this was so because once the woman became a part of the estate, the man became responsible for everything in her life, including their children. And if something happened with the children, that kinsman redeemer could lose his entire estate, all because it was connected to the new woman that he'd chosen to include in his family. So that made being a kinsman redeemer a risky, sacrificial decision. It was a big deal to be a kinsman redeemer for somebody. But that was Ruth's only hope for survival. So Naomi told Ruth what to do. So we go to chapter 3, verse 3. Wash. There's a tip for you. That's kind of a tip you feel like you have to make to your middle school boy, you know? Hey, listen. Why don't you take a shower? Okay. Wash. Put on perfume. Get dressed in your best best clothes, then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. In other words, (laughs) you don't you don't want to lose this uh, this campaign before it even starts. Let him get a little liquored up. Let him get a little lubricated, so you know he's a little bit more easygoing. You're trying to ask, there's a big ask here. So let him let him let him get till he's feeling good and relaxed. Then verse 4, then when he lies down, note the place where he is lying. In other words, take a look where he is. Wait till he falls asleep. And then go uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. Okay, then Ruth went down to the threshing floor, and she did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. And when Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, you see it? Okay, so yes, drinking did then what it does today. All right, so he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile and Ruth approached quietly. Like I'm just like imagining this sneaky music you hear in a cartoon. Dink, 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 dink. And she uncovers his feet and she lays down. So he doesn't notice her there. But then in the middle of the night, something startled the man. Anybody have a dog that sleeps in bed with them? In the middle of the night, you're like, what the? That's kind of okay. So that's the feeling. And there was a woman lying at his feet. And he said, who are you? And she said, I am your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. So essentially, Ruth asked Boaz, would you be my kinsman redeemer, my guardian redeemer? And Boaz enthusiastically responded, yes, yes, I will. But but then he pointed something out. Under the law, there was another person who was closer in relation to her. So there was another kinsman redeemer in the family who was more connected, more close, and he had to be offered the position first. So here's what Boaz said. Do you know all this is in the Bible? I'm really stuck. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. So he said to her, stay here for the night, and in the morning we'll go to him and we'll ask him if he wants to do the job. If, we'll ask him if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer. If he does good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Alright, so Boaz goes out to the city gate, he meets with the relative, he meets with the man, he, and told him about Naomi, and told him about Ruth, and he asked the guy to be the kinsman redeemer. And then Boaz proceeded to tell the man about the property that had belonged to Naomi's late son, and that he'd have to purchase that property if he was going to be the kinsman redeemer. And he says this, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you will also acquire Ruth the Moabite the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property in other words he says to the Boaz says this other kinsman redeemer if you get the property you get the Moabite woman too and you have to have children with her or at least you have to try to and if she has a son that son will have an inheritance and that inheritance will come out of your estate new kinsman redeemer you willing to do that is that cool with you So the new guardian redeemer said, "Eh, eh, I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You do it, Boaz. You redeem it yourself. I can't do it. Thanks. No thanks. See ya. Don't want to be ya. I'm done. I'm out. And with that, Boaz, an honorable man who recognized the honor and ruth, decided to act as Ruth's kinsman, redeemer, and he married her. And that could be the end of the story. It's going to be a really good story right there. Boaz did this right thing by Ruth the Moabite. Beautiful story. An honorable man, Boaz, did the honorable thing, took a huge risk and married Ruth the Moabite woman in order to honor his distant relative by making sure that Ruth had a covering and Ruth was protected. That would have been a nice ending. But God is more amazing than just that. Because you'll recall that God had made a promise to Israel. And God always keeps his promises. So the story continues. And not too long thereafter, Ruth and Boaz were married. And they had a son, whom they named Obed. And there's this amazing moment that happened when Naomi was an old woman. And she was holding her grandson, Obed. So as she held the baby, the women in town said to her this, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law, who loves you and and, and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. God was faithful here. God had not abandoned Naomi after all. Remember Naomi who said, oh, just call me Mara. Just call me bitter. God's abandoned me. No, he didn't. He took care of everything like he promised that he would. And Naomi lived to see that God had redeemed her and her whole family. All right, fast forward a little bit. Naomi, Boaz, Ruth, they all die eventually. And Obed grows up, and he has a son as well. And Obed's son's name was Jesse. And Jesse, well, he had a lot of sons. And one day, God spoke through the prophet Samuel and said this. He said to the prophet Samuel, Samuel, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. I'm sending you, Jesse, I'm sending you to Jesse, the son of Obed, Obed, the son of Boaz, who took a risk and married a Moabite woman in an era when it seemed like God had abandoned the nation. I have chosen one of his sons to be the king. So Samuel went to Jesse and asked to see his sons because God had chosen one of them to be the king. And then, now we go to 1 Samuel 16. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? To which Jesse replied, Well, no, actually, they're still the youngest. He's tending sheep. Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. And with that, David... The future king of Israel, the future greatest king of Israel, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the husband of Ruth, the Moabite, who was faithful to her mother-in-law, broke onto the scene. And years later, another prophet named Nathan appeared. And speaking on behalf of God, he said this to David, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And from that day forward, the Jewish people recognized that the savior of the world would come from the lineage and the line of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the husband of Ruth, the Moabite. Well, David had a son who had a son who had a son. And 24 pregnancies later, According to the gospel writer Matthew, Eleazar, the father of Methan, and Methan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. 25 pregnancies later, Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, was born. And throughout his life, he was referred to as not only the Messiah, the Son of God, But as Jesus, Jesus, the son of David, because he was born in Bethlehem, the city of David, the home of Naomi, who would bring a Moabite woman to marry Boaz, who would have a son, who would have a son, who had sons, all leading to many years later Jesus. Now watch this. When Jesus was born, wise men sought him out, and they announced that a king had been born. And not only did they believe it, but the reigning king at the time, King Herod, believed it too. And he did everything he could to eliminate the king that had been born. And then after more years had passed, Jesus would stand in front of Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea. That was appointed by Tiberius, the emperor of Rome. And Pilate would say to Jesus, just moments away from sending him to his execution, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus would respond, you said it. But Jesus would clarify, but my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of heart. Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of conscience. Pontius Pilate, who everybody knew in that day and age, the famous Pontius Pilate, would eventually become just another footnote in the story of the true king, King Jesus. Jesus, the king who leveraged his power for the powerless. Jesus, the king that did what no other king has ever even considered doing. Instead of requiring his followers to die for him, he would be the king that would turn everything upside down and lay down his life for his followers. And Jesus is the king that extends that invitation to every single one of us to invite him in and reign and rule in our hearts today. And you, in a single decision, could become part of this story. In a single decision, you can take this entire story of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of preparation and make it personal when you yield your heart to your creator king, when you yield your heart to your savior, the Lord, the Messiah, the son of David, whom we call Jesus. And so as we conclude this series, I want to invite you to consider doing something that maybe you've never done before. I want to invite you to surrender to God by telling him, God, instead of sitting on the throne of my own heart, doing what I want to do, when I want to do it, with whom I want to do it, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, I want to recognize Jesus as my king. And I want to yield the throne of my heart to him. And I invite him into my life to reign and to rule, no longer from the outside in, but from the inside out. And if you'll invite him to do that, and if you'll learn to live with your hands and your heart wide open, your Heavenly Father, through his Son Jesus, will change you, will revolutionize you from the inside out. And it will revolutionize your lifestyle for all to see. But unlike every other king, King Jesus is not going to force you to submit. King Jesus waits for you to invite him in. And if you've never done that, I want to give you the opportunity to do that today. And remember, no matter what you've been up to, and no matter how much you've been living by the what I want to do, when I want to do it, with whom I want to do it model, if it's not working for you, God stands ready for you to come to him. And as we've seen in the book of Judges, time and time and time again, the nation rebelled, and yet time after time, their heavenly Father took them back. So whether this is the first time for you, or whether it's a renewal for you, I want to lead you in a prayer. Now understand, the prayer I'm going to pray, these are not magic words. This is just an opportunity for you to express to your heavenly Father that you are yielding the throne of your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, to our King, to our Savior, to our Messiah. You can pray this in your heart. You can pray it out loud. But if you would, please now bow your head as a sign of reverence and close your eyes. And if you're ready, pray with me. Heavenly Father, I believe that Jesus is your son. I believe he is the king. I want him to become my king. I yield the throne of my heart to him. I believe that when he died, he died for me. I believe that when he died, he paid for my sin. Please forgive me. Please forgive me of my overt rebellion. Forgive me for the times I accidentally rebelled. Open my eyes so that I can see the world the way you see it. Open my eyes that I might see myself the way you see me. And give me the wisdom and the courage to know what to do from this day forward. I yield my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen. And so ends our series, right in the eye. Thank you for being here, being a part of Hammock Street Church. Please, 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 I invite you to come back next week. Bring a friend as we begin our new series, Life is Hard, God is Good, Let's Dance.